Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everybody, to City Beautiful Church in the Advent season. So good to see your beautiful faces this morning. Um, I love, I know Joanne already said it, I love it too. I love this season. We were in here prepping yesterday, and uh, Christy and I went to Hobby Lobby yesterday and stocked up, you know, and it's it's a wonderful time of the year, perhaps the most wonderful time of the year, Andy Williams. Um, So some of you may not be familiar with, with Advent. You know, a lot of times we talk about this as the Christmas season, but strictly speaking, Advent is uh, what comes right before uh, Christmas. And so Advent is about learning to live in the space between Christ's first and second coming. The word Advent actually means coming or arrival. Sometimes you'll see the Greek word as well, perusia. It's about this coming or this arrival. It's speaking of the coming of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit um, in, in various ways. And what Advent is actually the beginning of the church calendar. And so last Sunday is what we call Christ the King Sunday. And it's the kind of culmination of the story of God revealed in Jesus, that Jesus is the king over all the earth. And then this Sunday, we start telling the story all over again, um, kind of pointing towards Jesus's birth. And so what we're going to be doing this year is looking at the story of the Christ child from all of the other supporting characters. And it's really interesting when you read the the story of the birth of Jesus, um, that he doesn't actually have a large, like, he, you know, he doesn't have, like, a, a, a speaking role necessarily, but there's all of this, all of this buzz going on around the birth of the Christ child and all these various uh, characters. And so we want to look each Sunday at one of those characters and how they're perceiving the coming of God in the Messiah, Jesus. And so today, we're going to be looking at the prophets. And it's interesting because we're not beginning with celebration. We're not even beginning with action. You know, a lot of times we feel like as soon as we're getting into something like this, it's like, okay, let's go. We've got to do something. But when we begin with the prophets, actually, this is what we're we're doing. We're, We're learning how to wait with anticipation. And so the prophets help us to ask, can there be joy in the waiting? That we slow down before we get hyped up with the season and the shopping and the Christmas parties and, and all of that. We have to slow down in order to learn how to wait. And the second part of that becomes, can we learn how to wait with joy? Not a sense of happiness necessarily, a counterfeit form of joy. It kind of skips along the surface of life. But a deep-seated awareness of the fact that God is with us and that being our true sense of joy. And this is why we look at the prophets during the season of Advent. And so in that reading uh, from Isaiah 9, this is kind of a really great example of what we see. And um, Scott texted me last week that as soon as the scripture went on for Stacy's message, everybody started reading along. And I think that's, a, that's really great. We're getting to this point where everybody's like, oh, liturgy, let's stand up and let's read this together. And I love the public reading of scripture. It's important. And I think there's, the Lord does something in that. And so my next task is to get all of y'all to say Isaiah instead of Isaiah. <laughs> Um, and then we're going to, then we'll, a bit later on, we'll do Elijah and Elisha, okay? It's not, it's not Elisha, it's Elisha. So we'll, we'll get there. And so in, in, in Isaiah 9, we find one of these kind of quintessential prophetic pronouncements of God's Messiah. 
And so what's happening at the time that Isaiah is writing? So there's two, there's two kingdoms. There's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Israel falls to the Persian Empire. They come in and they sweep through and they, they conquer Israel. And Judah's kind of left standing. But Judah's kind of on the precipice too of being kind of overtaken by empire. And what had happened uh, a few generations earlier is that God is desiring to be Israel's king, kind of the unified kingdom of Israel. But he wants to be king. But the the Israelites look around at all the other people groups and they say, well, we want a king just like everybody else. We want to be like everyone else. We want to have the same kind of power. We want to have the same, you know, border security and all of these different things just like everybody else has. And so one of the prophets comes to God and says, I, I, I don't know what to do. They're asking for this. And you've specifically told them, I'm your king. You don't need an actual physical king. And God says, well, we're going to let them have a king and we're going to see what happens in that. And if you know the story, there's like, one and a half decent kings, and then it just all goes downhill from there for like 10, 10 kings in either kingdom. And they start to be overcome by the empires around them. And so what's happening is Isaiah is writing these poems to, uh, to Judah and saying, we're right on the precipice of Judah being conquered by the Babylonian empire. And this becomes the darkest period in the history for Israel. This becomes the exile. And so if you know the rest of the story, that later on, the majority of the Israelites are taken into captivity. They're taken away to Babylon, which is it kind of symbolically in Scripture. You can't get any farther from the promised land than Babylon. That's like, that's the, that's the boondocks. That's as far away from God's uh, presence as you can possibly get. And so Isaiah is writing these poems to prepare the people for this inevitable thing because this is what happens when you and I try to take power in our own hands, right? When we want to do things like everybody else, when we want to be like all the other empires in the world and just build our own empire that's even better and stronger, we've got even better kings, what happens is God removes his hand of mercy and he allows the natural consequences of the world to take their full course and before long we find ourselves in exile. And there's this consistent theme throughout the prophets that we find in Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and, and all of the minor prophets, that there's this pattern. And the pattern is this, that the, the dominant uh, emotion of Israel at the time is not necessarily pain, but it's numbness, okay? That the people are feeling the sense of numbness, that this is the way the world is and nothing is going to change. And so they close their hearts off to God and they close their hearts off to hope. And we find this very interesting pattern in the prophets, that the prophets begin addressing the numbness in the people of God by giving them permission to grieve, giving them permission to lament. This is what it means when it says, like, God will take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. The philosopher Jean Vanier says, maybe heart of flesh we could translate as a heart that is capable of being broken doesn't sound quite so romantic when we talk about it that way, but that is necessary for us to understand what's happening with the prophets. And so there's this pattern through the prophets of moving people from numbness to grief and lamentation, but through grief and lamentation to be able to hold on to a genuine hope that God is going to act and is going to fulfill his promises. And so the prophets are writing poems that are helping people to feel again, to grieve and lament that this is not okay. The way the world is right now is not okay. And to turn to God for a genuine sense of hope. But they need to learn how to patiently wait in the moment. And this is what Advent is about. How do you and I learn an active, diligent, patient waiting 
that we, we give the Spirit of God permission to move us from a sense of numbness. How many of you, you often feel that during the Christmas season, a sense of numbness? Because we're, we're so taught to kind of skip across the surface of life that we have this sense of numbness when it comes to the story of God. How do we open up our own stories to give ourselves permission to feel, to grieve, to lament? that this is not okay, the world is not okay the way that it is, and then in some way to ask God to give us a real, genuine sense of hope. And so poetry is the vehicle, the artistic vehicle of the prophets. We don't often think of them as poets, but this is what they truly are. Because good poetry suspends us in an attentive waiting space. Hold on, I'm going to fix this real quick. Poetry suspends us in this attentive waiting space, poetry slows us down. Poetry gets us to notice things, this active waiting. I've developed a love for poetry kind of more recently in my old age as I've kind of uh, learned more the necessity of being able to slow down and to notice. And I actually want to read to you a poem from uh, someone that I was reading this year. This poem just stood out to me so beautifully. This is a, uh, Seamus Heaney is a, a, an Irish poet. He's actually from the same city that my father is. It's called A, a, a Call. And it's just this little vignette from his life where he's speaking about calling his elderly father on the phone. And so I'm going to read this, but I want you to close your eyes and get yourself into that space of imagination just to see what, how does the poet's language of noticing and waiting in the slightest of moments kind of awaken us to deeper truths. And so I'm going to read this poem, A Call by Seamus Heaney. Hold on, she said. I'll just run out and get him. The weather here's so good, he took the chance to do a bit of weeding. So I saw him, down on his knees and hands beside the leak rig, touching, inspecting, separating one stalk from the other, gently pulling up everything not tapered, frail, and leafless, pleased to feel each little weed root break, but rueful also. Then found myself listening to the amplified grave ticking of hall clocks where the phone lay unattended in a calm of mirrored glass and sunstruck pendulums. And found myself then thinking, if it were nowadays, this is how death would summon every man. Next thing he spoke, and I nearly said I loved him. You see, the gift of the poet is to take those little moments that you and I take for granted in our numbness as we're just kind of going through life automatically and to say, hey, pay attention, listen, look, what do you see? What do you hear? What's going on within you? And to bring that to the surface and allow that to narrate our present moment. And this is what the, the prophets are doing. They're saying, hey, pause, listen, look, Watch, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? What are your expectations? What are your hopes? What are the things that you're burying just to survive? And can you instead allow those things to come to the surface so that we can actually come before God and he can give us a true revelation of what he is doing? I think this is kind of the theme of sacred waiting. That sacred waiting slows us down, it makes us more thoughtful, and it opens up our need to control the narrative around us. This is what this sacred waiting does for us. We get twitchy, we get itchy, we don't like to wait because we're action-based people. It's always move forward, keep going, 
have the vision, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, and we don't allow ourselves to slow down because we're worried what will happen if we sit and wait with God. I was thinking about it this week, even preparing as we're creating this space, as I'm doing stuff at home, as my family, we're exchanging our Christmas lists. You know, does the stuff of the Christmas season prevent us from waiting with open hands? We enter into this season and we're automatically filling them. We're filling them with stuff. We're filling them with activities. We're filling them with gifts. And none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but when they become the replacement for engaging with why we celebrate Christmas in the first place, they can become idolatrous. Because in our rush to get there, to get to Christmas Day, to get to the new year, we skim right past Advent, the place of waiting, the place of coming, the place of arrival. I think modern life has robbed us of our appreciation of deep time, of thinking not in terms of minute to minute, but actually thinking in terms of generations of thinking of those who have come before us, of thinking of those who are going to come after us. We're so addicted to the idea of instant gratification that we rarely slow down long enough to to receive the real deep time and goodness that is the faithfulness of God. The Barna Research Group, uh, David Kinneman, Kinneman is someone over there, and I'm reading a book right now, and he says, the tyranny of now exacerbates the anxiety of modern life. And how many of us, we talk about, oh, the busyness of the Christmas season, the busyness of the Christmas season, and how much of that is manufactured busyness? Because it's the tyranny of now. Because it's making the plans and saying yes to the things and all of this stuff, and we actually stir it up within us, and it becomes this deep-seated anxiety, and we miss it. The goodness of the season, the things that God wants to reveal to us slip through our fingers, because we're addicted to instant gratification. If I cannot have the promises of God met now in this moment, then maybe they're not true. And I need to go and find another God that will give me what I desire. The noise of the season prevents us from opening up space to just sit a moment and wait. I remember several years ago, uh, a pastor that I worked with was telling me when he was in college and he was doing a biology class, they had to kind of go out into nature to like, he went to a little pond and he had to sit for an hour and just observe and, and, and write down every, every piece of, of living evidence of the world around him, every animal and plant. And so he, he did, as many of us would do, he went and he sat and he got about two minutes into it, he started to get twitchy and he's moving around and he's not really seeing a lot, but he, was, he just kind of made himself sit in the moment and notice And all of a sudden, he starts to see nature come alive around him. And all of these things that he wouldn't have seen if he had just kept moving on, or even if he had just spent five minutes, quote-unquote, appreciating nature, he would have never seen. But to take that time to sit and to actively wait and to allow nature to reveal itself to him, he began to see things that he never would before. And I think that is what is so key for us in this season to learn sacred waiting is if we can sit and slow down and just open our ears, to open our eyes, to ask those all-important questions. God, what are you saying? What are you doing? And then to wait longer than five minutes that maybe God would actually speak to us. Maybe God would actually show us things that we did not know were going on deep within us. So sacred waiting pushes against all of our natural instincts to 
tether us to God and his faithfulness. I love that this last series as we were going through Philippians, Stacy was talking about this uh, as kind of wrapping up that series, that waiting on God retethers us to him as our anchor, that God is our anchor. God is the center of gravity for us Jesus people. And it, and it kind of re, uh, reconstitutes how we understand reality. And as Paul is saying, whether I have a lot or I have a little, I'm content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so it's not about what I have or what I don't or if I'm successful or if I'm a failure, if, if I'm getting what I want or I'm not getting what I want because I'm tapped into the eternal constant presence of God in my life right now and it dramatically shifts how I perceive everything else in my life. And that is where the strange joy comes from. The strange and sacred joy that we have as Christians that is not happiness, that's not contingent upon what we're getting or what we have or the baubles and the lights and all of these things that are fine in and of themselves. But this deeper joy that we are connected to the eternal presence of God as revealed in Jesus. That regardless of what happens, we know who we are and we know who we belong to. In another one of Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 7, he says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And can you imagine being those, those early readers of Isaiah's poetry and, and hearing this, this word, God with us? What is the promise of God? It's not just that he's going to give them a, a, a great house and he's not just going to give them a nice family and all these things. He's saying, no, my promise is that I'm going to be with you. And God's withness is the promise upon which all the other promises hang. You see, if you and I don't understand first and foremost and, and, and draw our joy from the fact that God is with us, nothing else matters. None of the other promises that God has for you, none of them mean anything if it doesn't first stem from the fact that God is with you. And in the New Testament, we see this kind of, this pattern over and over again that Jesus says, I am with you even until the end of the age. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the paraclete. He's going to be your advocate from within you. I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father advocating for you. The Holy Spirit is within you right now advocating for you. It's this constant withness of God. It is the first and foremost and most important promise that God has given us. And so this season of Advent, this season of waiting, of opening ourselves up, is, is to re, um, reattach us to this truth that God is with us and that he is for us. This isn't a passive waiting. This isn't us sitting and twiddling our thumbs at the bus stop waiting for God to show up eventually. Now, this is an active, diligent waiting. There is so much for us to do to open ourselves up time and time again to the reality of God in us and among us. And what happens when we're able to kind of shift from the busyness and the noise of modern life, the tyranny of now, to tap into the eternal presence of God with us? Sacred waiting prepares us in the greatest darkness to watch for the light. Sacred waiting prepares us that when the greatest darkness has come to watch for the light. 
You see, what happens when we skip across the surface of, of life, when we, when we misconstrue happiness as true joy, that as soon as we enter into the dark season and we cannot see God, we do not know where he is, we cannot see the promises being fulfilled, we want to jump ship. We want to run off because all of a sudden it's not making sense because we're so addicted to instant gratification. We have to believe that we're always being given what we want. God's the, the divine ATM that's always giving us what we want, right? We even do this with worship, right? We've become addicted to the show. And it's like, it's, I mean, it really is like a drug addiction. I need 30 cc's of, of awesome dynamic worship and all of this thing. And you know what happens is you develop a tolerance and you need 35 cc's the next week. And it's always this more and more and more because we use the things of God to actually distract us from just being present to him because we're still trying to control the narrative. And then all of a sudden when the darkness comes, when we're not getting what we want from God, when we don't feel a certain way or whatever it might be, we want to walk away because it's not working, right? I'm still working on the vision for next year. I don't have it yet. It's like there. It's like I'm div divining water. I know it's there and the Lord hasn't given me the words for it yet, but I know that part of it is that our community, we are moving from a place of faith being useful to being transcendent, okay? And what do I mean by that? This is what I mean. We do not believe in God. We do not follow Jesus because it's helpful. Because as soon as it stops being helpful, we're out. Right? It has to make sense at all times. It has to make us feel good. It has to give us the right answers. Right? And as soon as it doesn't do any of those things, we're out. We do not believe in Christianity because it's helpful. We believe in Christianity because it is true. Because it is transcendent. Because regardless of what we feel in the moment, regardless of what we believe in the moment, we have been given over to something that is much larger than ourselves and it actually gives us this trajectory for our lives that wherever we are, we are tapped into that eternal joy. As it says in that worship song that we so often sing, when I don't understand, I will choose you. And so Judah falls into the Babylonian exile. They're taken away for several hundred years. And eventually, they're allowed to return to the promised land. But one thing that they noticed when they came back through Nehemiah and Ezra and they're rebuilding the temple and they rebuild the city is that God's presence hadn't come back with them. They had their physical space, they had their, their land, but God's presence wasn't with them. And for 400 years, they experienced what they perceived as a silence from God, waiting for this prophetic fulfillment of this Messiah, this Christ this anointed one who would come and to bring all the promises of God to fruition. And so they had to sit and they had to wait and they had to be diligent and keep their eyes open and to keep their ears open. And one of the fascinating things I think about the Christmas story is that we recognize that it's only humbled people that are truly capable of this kind of waiting. It's only the humble people the people that have let go of all of the other distractions, who have let go of the simple and pithy answers that kind of suspend them in the moment, that are genuinely open before God, that are capable of this kind of deep and sacred waiting. Especially in the darkest times. Especially when it hurts, when it doesn't make sense. We celebrate Christmas on December 25th because it's a sim it has a symbol to it. When our ancestors, our, our, our fathers and our mothers, that they kind of began the, the evangelistic journey into Northern Europe 
and, and ministered to the Celtic people. And how many of you are grateful that they ministered to the Celts? That's all of you who are Irish and French and German, right? As they began to minister to them, they're, they're in a different culture and they're engaging with these different kinds of symbols and, and language and understanding of how the world works. And in, the, in Northern Europe, they celebrated the solstice, right, which is the 21st, 22nd of December. And it's the darkest time of the year, right? There's the least amount of light and that's the darkest time of the year. And then from that point on, it starts to get brighter and brighter and brighter. We in Florida don't really understand or appreciate uh, what that's like. But this was the most important time of the year for the Celts. And so when the Christians came in and they were engaging with the Celts and understanding their story, their view of the universe, this kind of idea of new birth, they said, oh yes, there's something true about that, but there's something that's even truer. And so Christmas was chosen as three days after the solstice. And for us in the Christian household, the three days is very significant, speaking of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, because it was after three days that you would actually begin to physically notice that it was getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And so we celebrate Christmas when we do, because it's this recognition of rebirth, of resurrection, of new hope, that coming out of the darkest time of the year, we begin to see again that God is, in fact, on the move. Theologian Alexander Shia says this, the deepest dark is not the place where grace goes to die. The deepest dark is the place where grace goes to be reborn. Now, what does that do for you? How does that shift your understanding of how everything's supposed to work? Because in a culture of instant gratification, as soon as the dark comes, we abandon all hope. But for those of us who are tapped into the eternal presence of God, that we think generationally, we think transcendently, we say, oh no, the deepest dark, that's not the place where we give up hope. That's the place where we come with expectation to say, okay, Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to work in this? Because it's in the darkest places that the light is most effective. Many of you know Mark and Shannon Jackson been a long time part of our community. And over this past year, they have suffered incredible uh, pain, incredible darkness within their family. They, they lost three babies in one year. And for many of you who have walked through that with them, you knew the pain, the confusion, the questions, the wrestling, the place where all of those cheap things that we say to each other to make each other feel better don't work. Even the things of faith. And they weren't able to be here today, but I asked Shannon um, to record a little something of her testimony to share with you, to show you what does this look like that in the darkest dark, we find the brightest light. And so Shannon's going to share her testimony. more than I can quantify in words. In short, starting on Thanksgiving, we suffered three miscarriages. But those words mean nothing to anyone that has lost in this way. They are empty shells of what was truly taken. 
I prefer to say I lost lifetimes because it's the only language that articulates the mystery and the magnitude of what was taken. This loss set my husband and I on a deep and wandering journey through the desert for the next 12 months. Everything was shaken. Our marriage, my health, my faith, my sanity. We didn't just lose pregnancies, we lost parts of ourselves. Yet in this year of wandering, the long night of grief, I have learned and gained more than in my entire lifetime on earth so far. Before I expand, let me say, God did not do this to us. He did not cause or encourage the loss of our children. No, he grieved this with us, often more than we allowed ourselves to grieve it. God hated these deaths. And he used our terrible loss as a pathway to healing in his kindness. I soon found out this grief was a gift, however desperately uncomfortable I found it to be. To be wholly stripped of every other thing we rely on, to see ourselves in the mirror, and impossibly to find God there with us in all of that ruin. I want you to know, in that place, his eyes never left me. He never looked away. The truth is that grief is inevitable. No one spends their entire lives only winning. So when it comes, we must choose how we will respond, what path we'll take. I chose through gritted teeth to be faithful in my desert. And on my journey, I discovered the long night is the place where we enter with nothing and we leave with the treasure of God himself. In Hosea, God says, He will make the valley of Accor, which is translated to the valley of trouble, into a door of hope. God is telling us the trouble itself is the doorway to true hope. We do not walk around the trouble or find a new pathway from the trouble. The trouble is the gift. The trouble is the doorway. We must accept the invitation to walk through the trouble into hope. Why hope? Hope because God returns to us everything that was stolen. And what he gives us back is his very best. Often it isn't a quick solution to the original loss. To be clear, a new baby will not ever be the solution to what we weathered. God himself would have to do. He is the God of journeys. On every journey, even the darkest ones, the gift we find is God himself. Shannon later said to me, grief and suffering is inevitable, but the love of God is still more inevitable. This isn't cheap. This isn't something to make us feel better. This isn't something to distract us away from our problems or to just get us to the next thing. This is a deep, heart-earned, profound, strange, sacred joy that is possible in the waiting. That joy and grief can actually sit next to one another. That they can be friends. That these, these realities can actually lead us deeper into the presence of God. Because all of the cheap stuff that we distract ourselves with no longer works and we're ready to actually meet him as he truly is. 
And I think this is the powerful truth of the Advent season. God is always arriving. God is always arriving. It's always Advent. So we are always waiting. Can we learn to wait with a sacred joy? Can we learn to sit attentively, to keep our eyes open, to keep our ears open, to say, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? How do I tap into your eternal presence now, regardless of what's going on in my life, regardless of my successes and my failures, regardless of my happiness or my sadness? In all of those moments, how can I see what you are up to and retether myself to you as my eternal truth and my real hope? Who were the people in the Christmas story that were most prepared for the arrival of the Messiah that God revealed in Jesus? It wasn't the powerful people. It wasn't the elite people. It wasn't the educated people. They had distracted themselves out of the presence of God. They had assumed God's abandoned us so we're just going to build our own empire. We're just going to pursue our own forms of strength. We're going to get our slice of the pie while we can. These are the people whose ears were closed off, whose eyes were closed to see the arrival of the Messiah, to see in that baby the presence of God himself, the best demonstration of what he is really like. Who were the people that noticed, that had been humbled, that had their hands open? The poor, the shepherds, outcasts in their own society the magi, the wise people, foreigners, those people over there, they're in the wrong religion. They have the wrong worldview. There was something in them that said, we need to be there because God is on the move. Life is one big advent. Life is one big recognition that God is always coming. So you've got to be alert. You've got to be awake in this season. Don't let yourself be distracted by busyness. Don't let yourself be overcome by the tyranny of now. Do you see him? Do you see him on the horizon? Do you see him in your dreams? Do you see him in the face of your neighbor? Do you see him in the poor? Do you see him in the strangers in this room? Do you hear him in the songs that we sing? Do you hear him in the scriptures that we read? Be alert. Be ready, be waiting, for he's coming. I want to invite you to stand with me. And as we pre- prepare to come to the Lord's table, to recenter ourselves on his truth, we to come open-handed before him, to allow him to speak, to act, to move. I want you to consider this. This is the thing that I want you to bring to his table and to lay before him. What am I diligently waiting on God for? What's the thing that right now makes me want to jump ship? Go find a better answer. Something that'll make me feel better. Something that'll make more sense. Where's my temptation, my itchiness, my twitchiness to run away from God? Can I instead name that thing? Can I name the numbness that I feel? Can I allow myself to feel again, to grieve, to lament? And can I bring that before Jesus? And can I lay it down before him and say, I'm waiting for you diligently with eyes wide open. And when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we're taking into ourselves the promise of God with us who will never leave us 
nor forsake us, the promise upon which all other promises hang. So we're going to pray. I'm going to invite you forward, starting in the first rows and working your way back. Father, we stand on the precipice of the Advent season, this, this new year for the church. But before we get into action, before we get into celebration, we want to slow down. We want to wait. We want to sit. We're not in a rush. We're not in a hurry. God, would you reveal to each one of us, deep within ourselves, what is something that we are waiting for? That we're waiting for you to reveal something, to offer something. Give us the strength and the courage now in this present moment to not hold your promises above that deepest promise of being with you. That we don't idolize the things that you're supposed to give us over and above just being in your presence, of being intimate with you. And Lord, as we come to the table, we give you permission. Send your Holy Spirit to alight upon us, to do work within us, that we would leave this place transformed. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.